this morning we're going to be continuing in our series through the book of John. Um, we are in John chapter 10, so uh, if you want to, you can go ahead and start turning there, and I'm going to go ahead and, uh, and set some context before we read it. Uh, we are going to be, we're only going to have two more weeks of John until we take a break for Advent, and so we're going to be doing a short series uh, in Advent. We're going to be doing Christmas and Isaiah this year. Um, through the month of December, and so we're going to be talking about the different ways that Isaiah points to the coming of Jesus, both his first coming and his second coming, and so we're excited about that. So uh, today and next Sunday we'll be in John, and then we'll kick off that new series in Isaiah. So I'm looking forward to it. I hope that, that you all will too. And we're going to have a new Bible reading plan coming out, an Advent Bible reading plan that we can go through together as a church that we're putting together. So uh, excited about that. Christmas season is going to be a great season as it is every year. Um, so I, I was thinking this week as I was preparing and, and working through this passage and, um, you know, one of the questions that I know I think that, that, that arises from this passage is, have you ever wondered how, why it is that two people can sit in the same room and, and they can hear the same gospel and one person can hear it and rejoice and believe and another person can be completely unmoved? Like it doesn't phase them. Have you ever thought about that? Like even within our own families, right? Like one person can hear that Jesus died for them on the cross and rose from the dead and they can hear it as good news. And another person in the exact same family can grow up hearing the exact same message and yet they can scoff and say, that's ridiculous. That's ridiculous. Why is that? I often... I marvel often today that I am following Jesus while at least more than half of my friends from the youth group that I grew up in show little regard for God today, and many of them have just left the faith altogether. And I wonder why. Like, they heard the same things I heard. I'm no better than them. I'm not smarter than them. I'm, I'm thankful for God's grace. I'm thankful that I do believe but why is it that I believe and others that I love do not? Now, we're going to answer that essential question this morning. I'm not going to answer it. God's Word's going to answer it. God's Word is going to answer that question this morning, and then we're going to look at the ramifications for that answer because there's some, there's some results, there's some, uh, some consequences for that answer. Uh, for those of you who are believers, who are followers of Jesus, the answer should be astonishing. And it's astonishingly good because it's completely undeserved and it's totally secure. If you are a Christian and you ever struggle with the assurance of your salvation, then this passage is going to be like balm to your soul. It's incredibly good news for you if you ever struggle or ever have doubts about whether or not you're truly saved or if God loves you. And if you're not a believer, if you're not a follower of Jesus then the answer to this question this morning will be alarming. It should cause you concern. But at the same time, as we will see, God remains gracious. And the fact that you are here this morning means that the invitation to believe is still being extended to you. And I hope and pray that you will hear the voice of the Good Shepherd and believe today. So we're going to go ahead and read John 10. I'm going to read verses 22 to 39, and then we will dive in and see how this passage answers our question this morning. That's what the Word of God says. 
At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. And Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said, you are gods? If he called them gods, to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming, because I said, I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then don't believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, Believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your mercy and for your grace. I thank you that you hold out the gift of eternal life and of eternal security to undeserving sinners because of the precious blood of Jesus that was shed on our behalf. I pray that your sheep would hear your voice this morning and that they would be comforted, that they would grow in their confidence of your love for them, that they would know how secure they are, in your hands, that they would know how safe they are, that they would know that they have eternal life, that you would chase away all doubts with your steadfast love. Perfect love casts out all fear. Would you cast out the fear from the hearts of your people with your perfect love this morning, God? And God, I pray for anybody here who does not know you, who is not born again, who is not following you. God, I pray that they would hear your voice this morning. God, I pray that you would call your sheep. God, I pray that, the, that your sheep that are not, that haven't been brought into the sheepfold yet, that you would bring them in today, right now, and that Holy Spirit, you would do a miracle in the hearts of those who are not born again. God, may nobody rest on their church attendance or their good works or the fact that they're better than their neighbor or that they don't do really bad things, that they're mostly a pretty good person. God, may no one in here be deceived into putting their trust in their own works or their own effort, but may they see that, God, the only way for them to be saved is by your grace alone. 
that if we received what we were owed, if we received justice, we would be damned forever apart from you in hell. But God, you give us what we don't deserve because you gave Jesus what we deserve. God, may you open up the eyes of the blind this morning. May you humble hearts and may people see just how glorious you are and come to you today. And I pray that you would help me, Lord. It's not my words that are going to change anybody. I can't convince anybody of the truth. I can't convince believers of your love for them. But, oh, God, your word can. Your word is powerful. God, your word is true. Your word is living and active. So it's not my commentary on your word that's going to change hearts. It's your word itself. So, Lord, may I just... um, Lord, may you help me to rightly divide the word of truth. May I hold up scripture. May I hold up the words that you are speaking now. And may your people hear you and your voice and not mine. Um, So please help me, God. I'm a sinner. I'm desperately in need of your grace as I stand here. Um, Lord, I'm so undeserving of this privilege to preach the gospel, but I thank you that you have blessed me with it. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So um, earlier in the chapter, if you'll remember, Jesus explained that he's the good shepherd of the sheep, and he also said, I am the door to the sheepfold, Uh, and that was happening in an exchange with the Pharisees after Jesus had healed the man born blind. And so this is a short time later, what we're reading right here, uh, and uh, we don't know exactly how much later this was after that exchange happened, but we know know some time has passed. Uh, Jesus is still in Jerusalem. He's in uh, the colonnade of Solomon, and he's surrounded uh, by some Jewish people, by the Jewish people, probably some of the religious leaders, uh, and they demand that he tell them plainly whether or not he is the Christ. And now, no doubt, there was some frustration behind their question, because uh, they, they didn't want parables. I mean, essentially what they're saying is they're, they're like, look, man, stop speaking cryptically and just tell us who are you. Like, if you're the Christ, just go ahead and say it, but stop talking about shepherds and sheepfolds and thieves and robbers. Like, who are you? And so, in one sense, this is the question upon which the entire gospel of John hinges, right? Who is Jesus? Is he the promised Messiah? Is he the Christ? Remember the thesis statement for the book of John? We've read it many, many times, John 20, 30 to 31 says that Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. So in one sense, this is a good question, right? Are you the Christ or not? But in another sense, their question here is problematic for a couple of reasons. Number one, they had huge misconceptions about the Messiah, about the Christ, and about who the Christ was. That title, Christ uh, or Messiah, it's the the same thing, it means anointed one. But it had a lot of political overtones in that day. There was a lot of baggage that came with the title Christ or Messiah. You see, the Jewish people believed that the Christ would rise up and defeat the Romans and become the king of an earthly kingdom. Kingdom. They believed that the Christ, the Messiah, was a political figure and a military figure. So when they are asking Jesus, are you the Christ? That's what they're asking him. They're asking him, are you that Christ? 
Are you the political leader? Are you the new king who's going to crush the Romans? Is that who you are? So the answer, of course, to their question is that, yes, Jesus is the Messiah in one sense, but not in the way that they think. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. And Jesus isn't going to let them box him into their own misconstrued vision of the Messiah. So he intentionally avoids using that title to refer to himself explicitly. And you'll notice that all four Gospels, Jesus avoids calling himself the Messiah or the Christ. In fact, it's interesting is that the only time he ever allows himself to be referred to by that title is with the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4 because she wasn't a Jew. And so he knew that she wouldn't misconstrue what he meant. And then with Peter, when Peter, towards the end of his ministry, made the confession, you are the Christ, with his own inner circle. But Jesus, he never took on that title with the crowds or with the Jewish authorities because he knew that it would be misunderstood. So he preferred the title, titles like the Son of Man or Son of God. He said things like, I am the light of the world. I am the bread of life. I am the good shepherd. The other problem with their question is not only did they have misconceptions about the Messiah, but their question was insincere. They're not being sincere here when they ask him, are you the Christ? They didn't actually want an answer. They wanted ammunition. The reality was that Jesus had been clear about his identity. And the clearer he got, the angrier they got. I mean, just think back to John chapter 5. You remember John chapter 5 earlier after Jesus healed uh, the invalid at the pool on the Sabbath? And then John 5.18 says this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So they didn't really want an answer. They wanted ammunition. Because, see, Jesus didn't fit the mold of what they were looking for in a Messiah, so it didn't really matter what he said or what he did. They didn't want to hear it. So their question is not a question out of curiosity. Behind their question is a stubborn refusal to see the facts. And Jesus really exposes this in his response. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to walk through Jesus' answer in the rest of the text. And there's four parts to Jesus' response. Okay, So Jesus explains the evidence for belief. Jesus explains the call to believe. Jesus explains the result of belief. And then Jesus gives a plea to those who don't believe. So let's look at how Jesus explains the evidence for belief. So in response to the demands of the Jews to say plainly whether or not he's the Messiah, Jesus responds. He says, I told you and you do not believe. And then right after that, he says, the works that I do bear witness about me. So he says, not only have I told you, I've shown you. I've told you and you don't believe. I've shown you and you don't believe. Well, how has he told them? Well, he's told them in, you know, dozens of different ways. I am the light of the world. I am the bread of life. I am the good shepherd. I am the door to the sheep. Before Abraham was, I am. I am the son of God. I mean, he's not hiding it. It's, it's not like he's being secretive about it. It's, he's been really clear about who he is. And not only that, but he's shown them who he is by signs, by miraculous signs. 
and by His actions. He's turned water into wine. He healed the invalid, a man who was crippled for 38 years. He fed 5,000 men, not to mention all the women and children, which was probably over 20,000 people, with five loaves of bread and two fish. He healed a man born blind by the word of his mouth. Jesus' works and his words reveal not just that he's a political Messiah, they reveal that he and the Father are one. They reveal that he is God. That's exactly what he says in verse 30. I and the Father are one. Throughout the book of John, all that Jesus has said and done is pointing to his identity as the Son of God who is one with the Father. That's what we see. That's what everything in the Gospel of John, that's what everything in Jesus' ministry is pointing towards. And every now and then, someone gets it. Like the man born blind that Jesus healed in John 9. You remember what he said when he was uh, being questioned by the Pharisees in John 9.32? He says, he says this to all the Jewish religious leaders who are supposed to know all the answers. He says, never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Ironically, the blind man saw the sign and understood, while those who thought they could see were blind to the sign and to the one the sign pointed to. Right after that, you know, Jesus went and told the man born blind that he is the Son of God, and the man born blind believed. So, one thing this does is it makes abundantly clear that lack of evidence isn't the problem behind unbelief. Because the man born blind got it. He saw the evidence. He heard Jesus' words, and he saw Jesus' works, and he believed while others didn't. So, a lack of evidence isn't the problem. You know, many people think that if they just had more evidence they believe. And it's tempting to want to ask God for a miraculous sign so that you can be more sure or to have a supernatural experience to solidify your faith. But the people in this passage who wanted to stone Jesus saw the exact same miraculous signs and heard the exact same words coming out of Jesus' mouth as those who believed. At the end of the day, an experience or a sign alone cannot elicit saving faith. So what does? What is the reason that people resist clear evidence? When Jesus explains it in verse 26 to 28, Jesus says, he looks right at the Jewish people surrounding him, demanding, they give, he give an answer, and he says, you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. You don't believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep, Hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. Now, most people read verse 26, and they think it means, you are not among my sheep because you do not believe. But that's not what Jesus says. He says, you don't believe because you are not among my sheep. In other words, you don't become a sheep by believing. You believe because you are a sheep. How do you become a sheep? 
Jesus tells us in verse 29. Look, what does he say? He says, My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. So you become a sheep by being chosen by the Father and given to the Son. Jesus says it this way in John 6, 37. He says, All that the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. All that the Father gives to Jesus will come to Jesus. There is not one sheep that the Father will give that that will fail to come to him. And there is not one sheep that the Father gives to Jesus that Jesus will fail to keep and to save. In John 17, 6, Jesus is praying to the Father right before he's about to be arrested and go to the cross. And he prays, Father, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. So this is not just an isolated thing. It's all over the Gospel of John. It's all over Scripture. The Father gives the sheep to the Son. So all of this means that it is God and not man who is the deciding factor in salvation. No sinner would voluntarily choose to become Jesus' sheep. Why? Because as Ephesians 2 says, we are dead in our trespasses and in our sins. We're dead. Dead people can't do anything. Dead people can't decide to believe. They can't cry out for help. There's nothing that dead people can do. The only way to become a sheep who hears the voice of Jesus and believes Him and follows Him is to be chosen by the Father and granted spiritual life. It is not a coincidence that the two miracles that bracket this passage in John 10 illustrate this reality. Think about it. In John 9, what happens? Jesus heals a man born blind. And then in John 11, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. Both of those miracles illustrate the spiritual reality that Jesus is teaching. A blind man cannot make himself see. And a dead man cannot raise himself from the dead. Both are helpless apart from the powerful unmerited working of God. So if you believe in Jesus, it is because God has mercifully caused you to be born again and given you a new heart. He chose you as His sheep. Now, there are almost always one of two responses to this doctrine. It's called the doctrine of election. Anger or humility. Many people, much like the the Jews who oppose Jesus in this passage and who take out stones to stone Him, are angered at the idea that God chooses His sheep for Himself. The response is, He has no right! That's unjust! It's not fair for God to do that. The Apostle Paul In his letter to the Romans, he anticipated this objection in his explanation of the doctrine of election in Romans chapter 9. I'll read just a small portion of it. Romans 9, 19 to 21. He says, and listen to how he anticipates this objection. You will say to me then, why does God find fault? For who can resist his will? So in other words, he's saying, Well, if God chooses who are going to be saved, then how does God hold it against those who don't believe? I mean, you know, if God's the one that chooses, then how can they do anything about it? He says, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? 
Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make use out of the same lump, one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? The reason there are such strong reactions against this biblical doctrine is that it is devastating to human pride. It puts a fork through the notion that we have anything good in and of ourselves to offer to God. The real question is not, how is it fair for God to choose some and not others? The real question is, why has God chosen anyone at all? God would be perfectly just to condemn every single one of us for our consistent rebellion. Over and over again, we have turned our backs on Him and we've worshipped and served the things that He has created rather than the Creator. We are, we are serial spiritual adulterers. We are. We are serial spiritual adulterers. But God has graciously chosen to save some to demonstrate His lavish, elaborate love. God sent His one and only Son, Jesus, and He punished Jesus instead of His sheep on the cross. God did this to save a particular people taken from every tribe and tongue and nation that they might worship Him and praise Him forever for His glorious grace. That's what Jesus meant in last week's passage when He said, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also because He died for them because He paid the price for their sin, because they belong to Him. Paul, The Apostle Paul describes God's purposes in election so well in Ephesians 1, 4-6. He writes, he, he writes that God chose us. He's writing to the church. He says God chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons of through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace. There's no gift more lavish or valuable that God could have given us than His Son, Jesus. And God gave Jesus so that His sheep would be enamored by His love and His wisdom and His justice and His glory forever and ever. The humble response to election, to the doctrine of election, is this. The humble say, I know I don't deserve to be a sheep. I deserve to be condemned for my sin, and I'm amazed that I am a sheep. I'm amazed that anyone's a sheep. But God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's how true sheep respond to God. They hear His voice, He knows them, and they follow Him. So, if you are in your seat wondering, am I truly God's sheep? How do I know? This is how you know. Do you love the voice of the shepherd? Do you trust him? Do you follow him? If you hear his voice and you follow him, then you are his sheep. You belong to him. The, the evidence that you are a sheep is not perfection, okay? It's not perfection. Those who belong to Christ bear fruit. They bear the fruit of the Spirit. What that looks like is it's a growing love for God and a longing to be near Him. 
It's, there's a growing hatred for sin that hinders fellowship with Him. I was talking with a believer the other day who was, who was telling me, you know, I, I just get so tired of my tendency to turn to social media all the time and it distracts me from prayer. Like, yes, that's, that's, a, that's the voice of a sheep. That's the voice of someone who loves the shepherd, who is grieved by their tendency to sin, who's grieved by their tendency to turn away from God. Like, Lord, I'm prone to wonder. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. That's the cry of a sheep. So do you hear his voice? Are you following him? If Jesus hasn't already given us plenty of reasons that we ought to, He gives us even more in verses 28 and 29, where Jesus explains the result of belief. In verse 28, Jesus says, of His sheep, He says, I give them eternal life. Now that is very good news in a world filled with death. Over the past six months of this coronavirus pandemic, there's been constant reminders of death. People are terrified of death. There's sorrow and there's fear at the prospect of facing death. So scientists are racing to create vaccines so that death can be thwarted, staved off. But at the end of the day, all vaccines will do is delay the inevitable. You probably aren't going to die from COVID-19, but you will die. Death is a universal problem. Studies show that 100 out of 100 people die. You know that? I'm not a scientist, but that's what I heard. But Jesus gives his sheep eternal life. He is able to do this because Jesus himself rose from the dead and he is alive right now. So we do not worship a spirit or a ghost. We do not honor an historical figure who died and then returned to the dust. We worship a risen Lord who rose bodily from the grave. He's alive in heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father, and all who are united to Him by faith share in His everlasting life. So Jesus gives His sheep eternal life. We share in that eternal life of Jesus. And not only that, but Jesus gives His sheep eternal security. He says, my sheep will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. You, that means that you cannot lose your status as a sheep. No one and nothing can snatch you away from the shepherd. Thieves and robbers cannot get to you. In other words, you can't lose your salvation. If you are saved, you cannot undo that. You can't be unsaved. Believers are set free from the curse of death and from condemnation. Jesus says in John 6, 37-39, He says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me, but raise it up on the last day. I also want you to notice here that it's not just Jesus' hands that we rest securely in. Did you see that? In verse 28, he says, no one will snatch you out of my hand. But then in verse 29, he says, my Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So here's what this means. The unity of the Father and the Son 
perfectly solidifies our eternal security. How can we be in the hand of the Father and the Son at the same time? It's because the Father and the Son are one. This means that the Father and the Son are united in their purpose of calling and keeping the sheep. Now, we worship a triune God, one God, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And God is not divided. So the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all happily join together, together in the calling and in the keeping of the sheep. So that means that to be in the Son's hand is to be in the Father's hand. Jesus says, again, I just read that, that verse, John 8, 38. He says, I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And God's will is that his sheep should be kept and raised up. So here's what this means for us, guys. If you can separate the Father from the Son, if you can break apart the eternal trinity, then you can separate the sheep from the grasp of God. That is how secure we are. If we are in Jesus' hands, then we are in God's hands, and there is nothing that can snatch us out of the mighty hand of God. Not your sin, not death, nothing. I love how Romans 8, 38-39 puts it. The Apostle Paul says, I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Don't ever let anyone tell you that doctrine doesn't have practical implications for your life because the unity of the Father and the Son is what solidifies our eternal security. Now, let me give you a couple of ways that this practically can apply to your life right now. First and foremost, this should produce extraordinary humility and gratitude in our hearts as believers. Now, God is the author and the finisher of our salvation. He accomplishes it from start to finish. He's the one that chose us. He's the one that plucked us up out of the depths. He's the one that resuscitated us and gave us life. And he's the one who is keeping us and holding us fast from start to finish. So that means that there's no room for boasting in any of our lives. I've heard it argued before that it's arrogant to think that God chooses to save his people. But it's only arrogant if you think that the basis of God's choosing and keeping is your own merit. Then it's arrogant. It's arrogant if you think you can earn it where others didn't. But God's sovereignty over our salvation should produce humility and gratitude. Because like Paul we should be able to admit that we are the chief of sinners and that we deserve nothing but enjoy everything based on the grace of God alone. So that means that no Christian can ever look at another person and say, I'm better than you. No Christian can ever do that. So that means that comparing yourselves, comparing ourselves to other people makes no sense. Instead, we ought to consider others more significant than ourselves, like Paul says in Philippians 2. So if you find yourself thinking, I wish my spouse would get her act together. I wish my spouse would get his act together. Or if you find yourself being hypercritical of your children, or if you're talking about somebody behind their back and criticizing them, those are all signs and symptoms of someone who has forgotten how much grace God has had on their lives. So be 
Be humble. You didn't do anything to deserve God's love, so don't make other people earn yours. You didn't do anything to deserve God's love, so don't make other people earn yours. And, you know, since our eternal security is guaranteed, our lives should also be marked by joy. And so much of our joy is stolen because we're anxious about death or we're anxious about being cast away from God because of our sin. But brothers and sisters, God's sheep do not have to wring their hands wondering, am I really a sheep? Am I really a sheep? I don't know. I don't know. You've been called and you are being kept by the sovereign will of God. Christ died for your sin. When he said it is finished, he meant it. Your debt for all of your sin, past sin, present sin, and future sin was paid at the cross. So your sin, that, here's what that means. Since all of your sin has been paid for, and God's wrath was poured out on Christ for your sin instead of on you, that means that your sin, if you sin later tonight or tomorrow, it no longer draws out God's wrath because there is no more wrath for your sin. It was all poured out on Jesus. It doesn't draw out God's wrath. It draws out His compassion for you. He's your sheep. You're His sheep. He loves you. He wants to change you. He's saying, no sheep, don't go off in this direction. I have something better for you. And like a good shepherd, He corrects you. Yes, sometimes He disciplines us. And discipline isn't always pleasant at the time, but His discipline is never punitive. He's not paying you back. He's not Never think that, well, because I'm suffering, I'm suffering directly because of some sin that I've done and God's punishing me for it in my eternal security. Like, there might be consequences for your sin, okay? If you go and rob a bank and you're a Christian, you might have to go spend some time in jail, but God's not going to cast you away. He's not going to forsake you. Robert Murray McShane uh, was a Scottish uh, pastor and preacher, and he said, for every one look at self, take ten looks at the cross. For every one look itself, take ten looks of the cross. So as Christians, we are free to take faith-filled risks for the gospel because we're secure. Let me, um, let me finish by, I told you that there was a fourth response, there was a fourth part of Jesus' response uh, here. So uh, the three responses that we've looked like, Jesus explains the evidence for belief, He explained the call to believe, and he explained the result of belief, and then Jesus gives a plea to those who don't believe. So, real quick, after Jesus unpacked this incredibly good news that God graciously calls and then keeps his sheep, in verse 31 it says that the Jews picked up stones to stone him. So, this is exhibit A of the blinding nature of sin. <laughs> they accused Jesus of blasphemy. And there was no doubt in their mind that Jesus was claiming to be God. They just refused to believe him despite the clear evidence. But I want to draw your attention to what Jesus does in verses 37 and 38 and how he responds to the people who have stones in their hands and are ready to kill him. Look at verse 37. He says, If I am not doing the works of my Father, then don't believe me. But if I do them, even though you don't believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Don't miss what Jesus is doing here. 
even as they glared at him with stones in their hands and murder in their hearts. Yet still, in this moment, Jesus extends his hand out and graciously invites them to believe. Even if you don't believe me, see the works. Will you see? Will you open your eyes? Will you believe? He pleaded with them to look at the evidence. He had compassion on his enemies. And friends, if it's not too late for them, then that means it's not too late for anyone in this room. It's not too late for anyone listening online. It's not too late for anyone in your life that you know. So if you've been angry at God or you've ever said, I hate you to God, this invitation to come is for you. Unclench your fists, drop your stones, and collapse into his merciful arms. If you hear his voice and your heart is softened, then come. If you know you are a sinner and that you need grace, then come. Christ died for his enemies. There's no greater love than that. His sheep hear his voice. Do you hear his voice this morning? Will you come? Please don't harden your heart against God today. Don't be, don't be unmoved and remain his enemy. Now, sadly, many people in this crowd who had stones in their hand, they didn't stone him that day, but they were the ones who were in the crowd crying out, crucify him, crucify him a short time later. And they remained his enemies. Don't remain his enemy. Don't casually shrug this off and say, I'll deal with this later. How do you know whether there will be a later? Your soul could be required of you tonight. And what will you do when you stand before God alone, without an advocate, without Jesus? It will be too late. You will stand condemned. And you will not have God as your protector, but as your enemy. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Whoever has ears to hear, come. Hear the voice of the shepherd as he extends mercy and grace to even his enemies. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up, and we're going to close out our time uh, of worship this morning with a song. And, and I'm, going to, um, I'm going to give you time in your seat to respond uh, this morning. If you know that God is calling you, if you hear the voice of the shepherd calling you, and maybe you're not sure if you're a believer, maybe you're not sure if you're really a sheep, and you think, maybe I am an enemy. Well, I'm right where you are in your seat. You can come to him this morning. And there's also going to be prayer counselors in the back as we're uh, playing the closing song. If you need to pray with somebody, you can go through, uh, go out those double doors back there and you can pray uh, with somebody. We'd love to pray with you. Or maybe you are a believer and, and you've just been straying away. You're a sheep who's been straying and you need to come back to the shepherd this morning. You can go back and pray with somebody. Uh, maybe you're a... Maybe you're a Christian and you've been discouraged. You've been just struggling and been hounded by doubts of your salvation and the Satan, the accuser, has been accusing you and, and condemning you and telling you that you're not really a believer and you just need someone to pray with you. You need to be reminded of God's love for you. You need to be reminded of how secure you are this morning. And God loves to minister to his sheep through his other sheep. So we'd love to pray with you and for you. So... Um, Yeah. I'm I am I am praying for the day in this city when 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 the weight of this reality falls on everyone 
like like a hammer. And we just grasp how, how real this is. That like literally eternity is in the balance. I, I'm, I'm longing for the day when, when we don't just sleepily walk into church and sleepily walk out and this is, this is real. There are, I, I read a quote just the other day by Robert Murray McShane, the, the pastor, the Scottish pastor and, and minister, and he, he wrote in his journal, uh, he, he only lived to be 29 years old. The man walked with God. And he said, uh, he said, I had the striking thought today as I walked through the fields that in a short time, every single one of my flock will either be eternally in heaven or in hell in just a short time. Every single one in this room. Like, in, in the span of eternity, this life is a vapor. It goes like this. In the blink of an eye, it's going to be gone. And every single soul will stand before God in this room. And every single person is going to exist eternally. Either eternally in the presence of God, in glory, or eternally separated from Him in darkness. And there will not be a chance to return after that. Let's not just shrug off the weight of that. And I'm saying that because I'm just like, I have a deep burden on me that please don't just sit in your pew when you kind of know God is calling you to make a decision and just go, eh, what time's the game on later? Don't do that. Oh, you will have such regret when you stand before God. Oh, the regret will be terrible. The regret will be horrific. Don't put it off. Don't assume that just because you go to church or just because you walked an aisle and got baptized one time or because you say you're a Christian or because you're a good person that you're secure, do you know Him? Is your life bearing fruit? And I feel like this is not planned, but I feel like I'm saying this because I feel like there's people that need to hear it in this room. And I want to make sure that nobody is damned to hell forever and that it's laid at my feet because I didn't warn you. So I'm going to preach the full counsel of God. And I'm going to tell you the truth, and I'm going to plead with you in as many ways as I can to please come to Him. Please don't put it off. I don't want anyone to perish in this room. I don't want you to perish. I want you to live. I want you to have eternal life. I want you to be forgiven. I want you to know this eternal security that God offers to everyone who will hear. Do you have ears to hear? So if you need to make a decision, if you need to respond to God, then for, oh, please, don't let the fear of what other people think keep you in your seat. Go pray with somebody. Who cares what people think? This is eternity. This is your soul at stake. It doesn't matter what anybody, like, if you get up and walk to the back, you know what people are going to think in this room? They're going to think, praise God. Amen. We all need to go back there and pray with somebody. I need it because guess what? I had a terrible attitude and I was acting like a jerk this week. I need God's grace. That's why Jesus died for us. Because we're sinners. We're not any better than anyone else. That's the whole point of this good news. That's why Christ died. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your word. God, I thank you for your grace and for your mercy. And Lord, I pray, Holy Spirit, please open the eyes of those in this room that don't know you. Please, God, may nobody leave here. God, just shrugging off their souls, shrugging off eternity. God, may they come to you. May you give spiritual sight. Please, God, please don't let anyone in this room perish. God, please, may your sheep hear your voice. May they hear your voice now. 
May they hear you saying, come to me. I will give you eternal life. You will never perish and no one will ever snatch you out of my hands. May they see your love that was displayed so magnificently at the cross when you died for us, even while we were still sinners. And Lord, may your people, may your sheep know right now in this moment that they are as secure as they, as they ever could be. That Lord, if, if God, if, if, the, if the Holy Trinity could be ripped asunder, if we could separate the Father from the Son, on the day that that will happen will be the day that your sheep are separated from you. On that day, we will be snatched out of your hands. God, we are unshakable. Our salvation is completed and secured, and we are firmly in your grasp. There's no one greater than the Father, and we are in the Father's hands. May every single one of your people know that. May you give them peace. May you drive out fear. May you drive out the accusations of the devil. May you give confidence, God. May you give boldness to your people. May you give joy to your people. Lord, we love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.